This evening, we are going to look, as I said, into some of the elements of trying to confront people with God's truth when they don't hold that there is anything that's absolute in terms of truth. And it's kind of interesting when you have, to me, the, the two terms, subjectivity and truth, don't belong together. I don't know how truth can vary. That's your truth for you, not... And so the whole concept is pretty irrational. Uh, Either something is true or it's not true. And we're not just talking about data or facts. Um, Even in principle, if something is true, then it should always be the case, no matter the circumstances or environment in which it is found. And so the concept that truth is subjective is uh, itself... Fallacious. It, it, it's, it doesn't agree with itself. It, it uh, contradicts itself, and it's not a logical conclusion. And so we're going to try to do something of approaching people in terms of being reasonable with them when they already hold a view of truth that is itself inherently unreasonable. And that's pretty difficult. But we want to talk about coming to people in an evangelistic setting Uh, from that perspective, because it's going to be one of the ways that we have an avenue toward uh, understanding uh, and engaging people, I guess is what I want to say, to engage people with the gospel. And so to do that, we really want to go into, um, well, I just can't see, to uh, Paul's ministry uh, in uh, Athens. So we're going to go to Athens in chapter 17. I really should have studied in this Bible instead of my old one, this section. There we go. It's on the wrong side of the page. <laughs> yes, Athens. Chapter 17. Book of Acts. I'm thinking, where is Athens? I'm, like, I'm in this chapter and I'm like, where did it go? It was right on this. It was different Bible, different side of the page. So here we go. I'm st- I told you it would take me about five years to transition to this new Bible, and we're only two years in, so I can't put up with that for a while. I still go pull out that Bible whenever I really need to find my way around quickly in something. So let's see uh, Paul in uh, Athens, and this is going to be interjecting with philosophers, right? So the concept of philosophy Um, is that these are some good thinkers. And we might think, well, these people are going to be reasonable. And Paul's going to kind of give us some direction how to address these people from a perspective of rational rationality. Remember that Paul predominantly, when he went into a new city, went to the synagogue, and he began there. And then he would go from there to the to the Gentile proselytes some of, and those who were friends of the synagogue, as those that were attentive to the truths and often listened in at the synagogue from the outside and knew what they taught and were uh, interested in things of the Lord. And then it would go from there to a larger Gentile community. And so Paul uh, used that technique in most places. When he comes to Athens, he's by himself, and we find that uh, he uh, is provoked. It says his spirit was provoked within him. 
and he just could not sit there and wait. He, he, he just saw what was going on. Uh, he was certainly walking about and trying to understand this community. And remember that where he is located, Mars Hill, is within the worship center of the Greek pantheon. So we are right below the, the uh, Atropolis. So we're right there, and, and you could almost throw a rock there. And so as you go up into, into Athens, and you, go, and you head up there, it's kind of off to the left as you go up from the south to the north, and it's still there. And you can, uh, it, it doesn't look anything like it did when I went the first time from the second time. It's been completely covered in graffiti at this point. Uh, as most of Athens has been. And just in the, in the two, between the two visits I made there, from 2001 to 2009 to 17, sorry, it wasn't 2001, it was 2000. Whenever it was I was there, total change, right? And so all of the places just covered in graffiti there on Mars Hill. And so you're very close. So what, when we talk about Paul was moving around the city, it wasn't just in the marketplace he was actually in an area where there was the, their worship area. And while the dominant characters of worship would have been up on the hill, uh, the, the great Acropolis, the, and Acropolis just means the top of a hill, the, where the Pantheon, we, we find that he's on one of the lesser ones and where were all of these other deities, lesser deities, that uh, had their alcoves, if you will, along the hillside there to be worshipped. So he's really involved in where they are worshipping. And I find it very interesting that Paul always goes where there's some worship going on to some degree. Um, but we want to find this. So let's go ahead and pick this up and read this together and see his engagement with them. Verse 17 says, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him, I love that, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of some new thing. Then Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, we're going to stop right there before he speaks. So we're in an environment where we're going to have some conversation. We're in a society where we have this conversation and we can't miss the terminology. The terms that are used here are the terms we're looking for. He, they reasoned. He wanted to reason. And so uh, he engaged them, not only the Jews and the Gentile proselytes, but also people in the marketplace. He just wanted to engage them. And it wasn't an unreasonable statement, even though they're going to, have some, they're going to be struggling with it. Uh, because of the foundation of how they examine things and determine what is true. And so while he's doing that, and as he is doing that, he is being encountered by the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. And, and we don't need to go into their philosophies precisely, but we have people that have 
and by the way, Epicureans and Stoics are not the same, okay? They're two very distinct philosophies of life. And so we have these individuals that are already committed to an, a very unbiblical philosophy of life, a way of thinking. Uh, and that's what we're engaging. We want to know how do we engage people who are already so unbiblical, so uh, far from godly concepts and principles, how do we engage them? And Paul was doing it, apparently doing it with some effect, to the point that they like, oh, we, 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 we're not sure how to handle this. And so rather than engage them in the marketplace, they're going to take them, and the evidence here is that they're taking them basically to their Epicurean and their Stoic and their other philosopher leaders and um, to, to examine him and to give him a full hearing, which is a, was a common practice there, we're told. This is what they did on Mars Hill. They engaged in this kind of discussion. And we don't have that very much unless you think that your social media is that place, but it isn't. Um, it really it really isn't. You're much better to do it in person. So what do they say? They, they're, they're, the philosophers say this is a new teaching. The word doctrine is just teaching. This is something new. We haven't heard it before. We haven't engaged in it. And you're going to encounter that. Are these irreligious people? No, they are very religious people, all right, with an ungodly philosophy that they are pursuing intellectually, even, uh, and, and are, are identifiable, and you should be able to identify the philosophy of life of those that you encounter, Whether, and hopefully you have a bunch of isms in your list, right, of where people are at. Uh, we can say, well, there's humanism, which is what? What philosophy is that, class? What does it sound like? All right, man is the center that we, everything derives around and is defined by us. And so man, it is the worship or the following after that man is the pinnacle and that there isn't anything above us that we're answerable to and man is the measure of all things. All right, what's hedonism? All right, pleasure is the pursuit of man. Uh, and that's the fat Buddha, Okay. So it's not just Western concepts. These are Eastern concepts as well. If you're in Asia, if you're following the fat Buddha instead of the skinny Buddha, um, then you're pursuing that as well. That that is the evidence of, of happiness and completeness is to pursue pleasure. All right, is there much of that around? Okay, what's nihilism? N-I-H-I-L-I-S-M, lots of eyes. Nihilism is the belief that everything's worthless and nothing. Nihilism is nothingness. And, and we're not talking about, atheists actually have a lot more faith than nihilists. Nihilists is just giving up on everything, nothing makes sense. And, and if you really pursue nihilism to its end result, you're going to be a very depressed, down person and commit suicide. Because there's nothing to live for. And, and you'll know it when you encounter it. So you, and you have a lot of other isms. I mean, we could sit here and try to go through a bunch of them, but I'm trying to throw out to you some of the ones that you're going to encounter mostly in our society today. And so while they might even claim, I, I find a lot of people claim to be Christians who are really hedonists. And by pleasure, it's not just uh, a physical experience. Sometimes it's whatever 
your ICs, your, that whatever you enjoy, that enjoyment is equal to uh, uh, happiness or completeness. Um, it is the, your pursuit of life. Is, and, and so you find a lot of people who are hedonistic, but not in the area, we often associate that with sexuality, but it's really not just there. A lot of hedonistic people are just going to pursue anything that feels good. And so they're after experience. I want to experience this and experience that. And then all these experiences combined uh, give me meaning for my life. Uh, so you're going to encounter a lot of that, all right? And then, uh, and, and so really a lot of your materialism was materialism. Pursuit of things, okay? And materialism is really a subcategory under hedonism in, in my understanding um, because they're trying to find pleasure in these possessions and it's still trying to find pleasure. And so uh, it is measured by what you have. And so uh, the attainment of goods is, is going to bring you uh, meaningful life. That I'm meaningful based upon my possessions. And so, uh, and the more possessions I have, the more uh, complete I am and the more fulfilled I am. And so these are what you're encountering. Now the problem is that we have a little bit different than Paul is that no one's walking around with these labels. Occasionally they will. Occasionally they say, well, I'm a nihilist. Usually you won't encounter that. Usually you'll encounter two, two different groups. We want to talk about them very briefly. And that's agnostics and atheists. Okay? What do those two terms mean? What's, let's start with atheists. They believe there is no deity at all. And so they'll say, well, I'm an atheist. And, and, and logically, atheists are all not atheists. <laughs> None of them are, uh, if you really encounter them and, and, and engage them. Uh, usually they are anti-theists, or what they really are. They are not true atheists. They don't believe in any god. They just don't believe in your god. All right? Um, what's an agnostic? Well, an agnostic, well, um, really an agnostic just says that uh, there's no way to know. There's no connection. There's no, you cannot know. Um, an agnostic, Gnosticism is knowledge. So agnosticism is you cannot know. So you just don't know. We don't know anything. So it's, to me, if someone says I'm agnostic, then I put them under the category of a nihilist as a subcategory of nihilism because eventually agnosticism, if you take it to its, to its root, will take you to um, there's nothing to live for because you don't know anything. We can't really know anything uh, in the spiritual realm uh, is true. So we don't know. Um, and so when we come to these, these are the isms we're encountering. Paul's encountering the Epicureans, and the Stoics. And you can study those, but we want to really just talk about reasoning with people and reasoning with them in, a, in, a, in directing them to truth. Now, as they were being countered, we already know that Paul's already introduced Jesus Christ and the resurrection. All right? Very important elements. So they hear him talking about Jesus, they hear him engaging people, and reasoning with them. Now, this is why I think it's so important that we do this wherever you live. 
Here we go. You ready? Because it's not the person you're talking to that's listening the best. And that's why you should do it in the public setting. So if I'm in a group setting and I'm hanging out with some people, coworkers, or I'm in, and I start engaging somebody over here and uh, we're having this discussion, um, uh, he's not really listening. The person I'm talking to is not carefully listening to my, my line of reasoning, usually. They're usually trying to, while you're talking, they're trying to come up with how they're, what they're going to say, right? And so um, they're, they're not really listening to your line of reasoning. The one that's listening to your line of reasoning are the people who aren't talking, who are listening. And let's be honest with us. All of us are better listeners if we're eavesdroppers than if we're engaged in the conversation. <laughs> right? Come on, let's be honest. Please be honest with yourself. That, that, you're just a better listener if you're not involved in the conversation. If you're the third party. Third party people are always better listeners. I love listening to people argue. Back and forth and lots of people and then just kind of smile. <laughs> And because I'm listening, well, and I know that they're not listening to each other. All right? And so here Paul is in the marketplace. He's already been to the synagogue. He's in the marketplace. And it's a third party. He, these people are listening to him talk to other people. And they say, wait a minute, what's this? I've never heard any of this stuff before. And that's great. And that is the condition of so many people that you're going to encounter have not heard this stuff before. So let's go and see what he does. So he's going to take off, and we're going to bring him to Mars Hill. And that's the environment that we're going to find these words. So let's look at the words. Verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. So where is he starting? With where they're at. He has already investigated. He already kind of knows them. And so even from a superficial perspective, he knows where they're at. And that's why you should be able to identify people where they're at. And he doesn't condemn them. In fact, this might even be considered a compliment by them. And when I find people who I can engage intellectually, reasonably, that want to reason about it, uh, I always say that is great that you're willing to talk to me. Because to, a lot of people can't talk in, without yelling and getting upset. And so, you know, if you're willing to engage me and, and without being offended, uh, that's to be applauded because that's rare in our day. When you get, find someone like that, make sure that you recognize that, that they know that you appreciate this. And so Paul comes in, he begins saying, you're very religious, um, I perceive this about you, I'll give you why I came up with this in verse 23, I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found all to the inscription of the unknown God, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. And so he lays it out there early on, here's the end point, he actually gives them the end point at the beginning. To say, well, here's who I am. I know who you are, and here's who I am. Can I explain to you how I got to where I am? And so, um, he's not hiding who he is. He's saying, listen, um, I was once a sinner, 
right? I was lost. I had these questions in my life, and here's who I am. And, and so I'm not unrelated to you. Uh, I'm putting it into your ism, and I am, I am associating with it that that is something I have propensity towards. We see the, the strong influence of these isms uh, on our life that the world wants to press upon us, that we want to be the measure of things, humanism, we want pleasure, hedonism, we want, and, and ultimately, um, the whole idea of just exist and don't ask and don't think about it, which is nihilistic. And so we come to this, and he says, okay, I want to share with you who God is. The unknown God, the God you don't know. Right? So, where does he start? How do you introduce someone to a God they don't know? On a rational basis. Remember, this is Philosopher Hill. Right, verse 24. We go right to where? God who created. God, the one, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor does he worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Now he has a just, and before we get into the, the nature of man, uh, he's going to talk about God's relationship with man. He talks about God's power, and this falls right in line with Paul's statement in Romans chapter 1. What does Paul communicate in Romans 1? About general revelation. Has God revealed himself to all men? Yes, through creation. That what, what needs to be known about God is clearly seen in the created world around us. Now there's a problem that you're going to have. And the problem is most people have no concept of what the created world around them is like. Why? All right, so they're, they're disconnected from it. How are they disconnected from it? This is kind of, this is our world. We're disconnected from our own created world. We are, all, we are predominantly second, maybe even third hand learners of creation. All right. You've been pulled out of the created order, put into these urban settings, and surrounded by nothing of God's creation and all of man's creation. And so we are disconnected. And now where do we learn about created order from? The zoo. All right, we go to the zoo where we have someone tell us, Here's what I learned at our national zoo in Washington, D.C. I was there with my friends. We were standing there with me, my wife, and Mrs. Wallace. Uh, Mr. Wallace was at work. And between us, we had <laughs> like seven children. So, was it seven? I think it was seven. Little ones. I mean, they were all tiny. All right? And so we're standing there, and here's this person telling us, well, the number one threat to these species is overpopulation. <laughs> Habitat, they're losing habitat because there's too many humans on the planet and everyone looked at us. So, again, we're... So that's what I learned at the zoo that day, was that we should, we should be killing all these children. We shouldn't be having kids. 
okay, which is completely in conflict with God's word, right? And by the way, on that same trip, we went up to uh, Washington's Monument. You have to take this elevator. And I, I assume that these guys have contact with a lot of international people. And so he said, are these your wives and children? <laughs> I was asked by the elevator operator that. <laughs> are these your wives and children? I was like, no. Just this one. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, when we understand that most of the people you're encountering with don't know that only chickens lay eggs and not roosters. And that without roosters, eggs don't hatch. Now, why do I use that example? Because I sat on my back porch with a group of seniors from West Mesa High who didn't know that. And they're pretty sure the only reason eggs didn't hatch is because you put them in the fridge so they wouldn't hatch. I was like, no, none of my eggs will hatch. I don't have a rooster. Huh? Okay? They are that disconnected from creation. Okay? The farther we are disconnected from creation, and that's why the Bible, the farther we are disconnected from creation, the farther we are disconnected from information that God has revealed about himself in creation. And the world will never point you in that direction. So if we're secondary or tertiary learners about creation from scientists who deny God, no wonder we are struggling to point people to God in creation where Paul starts. The God who created all these things. Now we have, we have arguments, we have logical arguments for created order. For the existence of God by looking at creation. Uh, we have one of them is called the cosmological argument. That is a logic argument and we study that. I, I present these in our, in our uh, doctrine class uh, over arguments of the existence of God. Uh, we go through anthropological argument, the uh, teleological argument, but one of them is the cosmological argument, and that is you cannot look at the vast, uh, of the extent and the, from, from the tiniest to the biggest scale uh, and recognize that there is complete order. We don't go from chaos to order in science. You just don't do it. You never make that movement without a lot of energy and a lot of thoughtfulness. And so uh, the cosmological argument is there. But people are detached from that, and Satan has won this, this thing in, in too many people's lives. So when Paul starts off, listen, the God who created everything, I mean, he's standing outside on Mars Hill um, with a lot of creation available to the, the perusal from people who are largely agrarian, even though they live in Athens, they are still very strongly connected to creation. All right, these people did not turn on a light uh, to uh, a switch, and another switch to flush your toilet, and another switch to, uh, you know, they, they still had to go and do all those things, and while they might have been uh, somewhat removed from raising their food, the fact is, is that they had to go to the market and get an animal that had been recently butchered. Right? It wasn't packaged in plastic in the supermarket in your preferred cut. And so when we understand the need to draw people in, and that's why uh, I, I really think it's important to just say, 
you know, to draw people's attention to creation from a first-hand perspective because scientists will never lead you to God. And therefore, their perspective is going to be untruthful. And we're trying to point people to the truth. Now, people like uh, Answers in Genesis um, and other apologetic groups we're going to talk about next week, their perspective is to fight science with science, false science with true science. Uh, and, but you still have a problem. What's the problem? You're still two or three degrees separated from the truth. And that's why, uh, if you remember Dawn Waskowski, she used to go into groups and take all of her bugs because she was a bugologist. What's the name for it? Scott could tell me. Yeah, entomologist. Uh, that was her hobby. And she would go in and she would say, well, this is all by, look at this, look at these, look at these, look at how they're all designed. Well, what are we doing? We're introducing, and there's lots of people out there who do this in various, some with reptiles um, and with bugs, and they're trying to go in, they're trying to introduce people to give them first-hand knowledge. Look at this bug. Look at this and see order, see detail, see these things and experience it for yourself and learn. And this, these are valuable mechanisms to introduce the concept of truth. So Paul is wanting to point people to creation. Okay? So we want to confront people with the truth and that truth is the created order around us. Now we are talking about their ability to engage and physically touch, see, smell, hear things, right? We're not starting with God that cannot be known, with a God who is out there somewhere, God is a spirit, and, and we have no way of seeing or hearing him. No, we start by introducing him to the work of God, and this is a reasonable approach to people uh, to engage them. How do you deal with these things that you see every day? The problem is they're not looking at any of that. They're looking at this. They're looking at man's creations, and they're surrounded by that instead of God's create order. And I love taking children out into the wilderness, to the mountains, to camp, to engage with created order. And the last thing I want them to do is sit in their cabin or sit in stare at a device. That's why I don't even bring your devices um, because it's counterproductive. I want them to understand and engage with the world. I love having kids come and take them when I'm doing my agricultural things. <laughs> okay? To introduce them to creation. But you're also introducing them to God. Because creation points to God. So we're starting with, okay, all of us have, should have this access to the created order. And Romans 1 tells us that should point to God. And so when we want to reason with people, um, we don't, don't be afraid of engaging people from the perspective of God who created the heavens and the earth. And therefore, he has to have power. He has to have intelligence. He has to have greatness. He doesn't need anything from you, is what Paul tells them. He doesn't need you. And this is very important because in the Greek-Roman philosophy of worship, gods needed our worship. 
They almost lived off of it. It was kind of their food. And so if, if a god didn't get worshipped, that he would kind of diminish in power and, and influence. And that's why it was important to have an idol to the unknown god because maybe there's one that we've all forgotten over the ages because we all ignored him, and so now we, we bring him back. That was the principle behind that. They're having an unknown god idol is because gods need to be worshipped or they will cease to exist. And Paul says, this God doesn't need that. God doesn't need anything. He gives everything. And so how can an all-powerful being that created the heavens and the earth need you? You need him. Okay, But he reveals himself in creation. And so one of the first points of reasoning with people is to look at their experience with created order and that sometimes means you got to get them to experience created order at this point. And so when I engage people online or um, in other f- environments where I have opportunity, uh, especially with collegians, I love engaging collegians because they think they are smart because they've learned a few words, and, and it's really easy to baffle them. Uh, and it's getting easier and easier, by the way, to baffle them with just normal things in creation. How do you explain this? Well, you can't. The problem is they're only being taught this little sliver and most of its lies from a source that they've been told is intellectual. And because they only know this little sliver, they become very susceptible because they don't have breadth. Okay, so I can engage a graduate student from New Mexico Tech on an airplane and blow his mind in just a few minutes with geology, and he's the geologist, not me. Because all he knows is what his professor has taught him. And I'm like, well, how did, how does, why is there the sudden emergence of life at this one layer and not earlier if it's, life's been around for all this time, why does it suddenly appear and it appears in its full form in the fossil record? I mean, that's just a very simple question. Well, we don't know. Say, so, huh, what else don't you know? So, and his whole statement was, well, you guys have been brainwashed. I said, how can you say I've been brainwashed when I know what you know, but you don't know what I know? Because part of brainwashing people is to keep information from them. Okay, so I'm more than happy to teach you what Mormons teach. I'm more than happy to teach you what, what Mormons believe, what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, what Catholics believe, what Muslims believe. I'll teach you all of that if you want it. I've, I've investigated those. I mean, I, I took courses on each of those. Um, what the cults believe. I had a whole semester of learning about cults. It was depressing. Um, that's why I say they are incredibly faith-oriented people. But they believe a lie. Um, and the same thing with other doctrines. And so these guys are being approached, and Paul begins his engagement with them by, let's talk about what God is from creation. And we need to be able to do that. That our reasoning isn't your imagination or your mental gymnastics. Reasoning says, let's go with what we experience. And that sounds weird. Because you start with their experience to, to come to truth. 
Because truth is above my experience. Yes, it is. But God created order, reveals something about him, and the only way is to draw people to that created order firsthand. And under no circumstances are you going to look around and conclude that all of this is chaos. This is not the result of chaos. It can't be. Because everything we see goes from order to chaos. That's the natural progression. Um, If I stop working in my field, it doesn't get more orderly. It doesn't turn into a garden on its own. Correct? I have to apply intellect to it to make it a garden instead of a wilderness. And that's true in every, every single part of creation, including man-made stuff. And so when I go out into our national parks and I walk around and they say, don't go off thing, and we don't want to disturb nature, I was like, well, look at how this nature produced asphalt right here where we needed to walk. Did that evolve there? No. So they went in and disturbed nature so that we could go in there and not disturb it. But the whole concept there is you can look at that and say, well, obviously this is man-made. Obviously there's intelligence here. And I remember even talking to fourth graders on a field trip about that. What do you think about this? And I was was trying to affect their worldview a little bit. Now, I don't know how much a fourth grader is going to remember any of that, but I wanted to make that statement. It's like, do you think this is... No, and, and every one of them, every one of them agreed that there was nothing random about that. That there was asphalt under your feet while you're walking this path through the petroglyphs. Oh, you can recognize order compared to disorder. And so we need to draw people. And so Paul begins by drawing them to creation. The God who created heaven and earth, all that exists, and we can point to his power, his majesty, and that he is above us, that he is transcendent, that he doesn't need us, that we are the one in the conditions. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He just, with that one statement, he just blew out all their belief system. Because every one of their gods needed a temple. Do you understand that was what was going on in Ephesus? If we stop worshiping Diana and stop buying her idols and stop going to her temple, you know what happens to Diana? According to Greek thought, she will diminish. So we better get around and shout out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Because if we don't do that, she will lose her power. Well, God doesn't lose power. They're really a God. He doesn't dwell in temples. He doesn't need anything. He's different from us. Uh, verse 25, nor is he worship with men's hands as though he needed things since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So I'm walking on another field trip through the church of evolution that we take our children to faithfully to teach them that religious belief system here in Albuquerque, government-funded, the church, we go to the Church of Evolution, we go through the tunnel of life, and they show chemical equations. All right, so I have some chemistry background. So I, I said, oh, so let's do it. Let's take these equations and produce a new life. 
without life. And so I know it's dishonest. That's what they're teaching. Here is the chemistry of life. And then, shazam, there's an electrical light bolt out of somewhere, and, and it came to life. You know, the Frankenstein view of how life exists came into being. And so out of this soup of chemicals, we have this, and in the application of energy, we have this random life, and it didn't just happen once. Because one person will, you know, if, one, if it happened once, then it just dies off, right? So it has to happen how many times? <laughs> Multiple times in proximity. And it has to happen enough difference that you have a male and a female. And that's true for every step. So I walk them through this, and they go, well, that's not reasonable. I was like, exactly. The only thing that makes sense when we actually engage this world is that there is a God above all things. And we're using creation as the beginning of a reasonable faith. Look at the created order itself. Do you really, is that, no wonder people are nihilistic. No wonder they're agnostic. No wonder they don't know anything. Because we have, remove them from first-hand knowledge of the created order. We remove them from studying the stars, from knowing how the oceans and currents go, of, of even farming, how to grow their own. They don't even know how to grow their own food. Okay? Um, except on Farmville. Do you remember Farmville? You're looking at me like, what is he talking about? On Facebook? You could have your own little farm on Facebook. And you just got lots of clicking is all it takes to grow your own food. Lots of clicking. No. And so you learn about the biology. You learn about all these things. And so we want to draw people to created order. And there is the beginning of a rational approach to... Um, even high philosophers. These guys were high in their philosophical pursuits. And Paul starts them where we should start, with created order. And that's why you should be very adept at handling these things. And that's why I encourage you to use like Answers in Genesis material and get to know it. Um, and the Creation Research Society over here in Arizona to, to real, and I get their stuff, uh, their um, information. They have an iDino project going on. It's been going on for years. They have all these projects. They have scientists with high credentials involved in them. Uh, there's a creation group here at Sandia National Labs. Um, and we've had one of them speak at one of our men's retreats for us. Um, and so it's out there. You should know those things. But I just want you to understand that sometimes all it really takes is to get them into creation itself and experience it firsthand. And then to ask them, do you really think this is a by accident? Because if it's not by accident, then it's on purpose. And then we have to ask, what's the purpose? God is not only the originator of everything, but he is the one that gives you life and breath. He gives you all things. He is the source and we're trying to get them. So what we're doing is we're moving them from a third-hand contact with full of misinformation, trying to get them back. And so you want to say, where am I going to go and find truth? Well, the Bible tells you begin with creation because it reveals God. 
And so we need to take them into that. But most people are, again, disassociated from it. And we need to bring it up. So Paul says, let's go to creation. Uh, and then, we're, he's not done. For, I, I'm almost done. I'm out of time. But, uh, and then he goes into man, verse 26. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So who's in the bad condition, God or man? Man, we're groping. He's taking high philosophers of the nation of Greece, Rome, and calling them gropers. You're just groping around in the dark. It's like you've turned off the lights and you've forgotten where everything is. He says, listen, that's your condition. But God has made the nations out of one blood. So now he's gone from the wider created order to man himself. And this might seem like we're pandering to humanism, but we're really focusing on that we're the height of creation, but we're in trouble. And we can point to, and, and every time someone wants to say, how can God allow? I say, how do you allow it? You're the pinnacle of creation. How are you hateful? How do you do violence? How do you lose your temper? How do you do, how do you, how do you, you know, you want to blame God for every war, you want to blame God for every disease, when most of the diseases are of human origin. Most of the toxins that are making us sick, we generate. Okay? It's not just the alcoholics that are, that are confused and don't realize I'm killing myself. All of us are, by all the toxins we pump into our environment. Uh, number one toxin being sugar. Right? Processed sugar. We pump that into our bodies regularly. And so don't just point the finger at the alcoholics, drug users, smokers, all those, because we're pumping it in. And, and so we, we find people blaming God. Why would God allow why would God allow? Well, God made man of one blood. All the nations come out of one blood. That's a wonderful statement. We're all one. Um, and again, going back to the creation of man. And do you really think that you're a relative of an orangutan? Do you really think that you are related to insects somewhere back there? Um, and again, they are devaluing man, whereas God's word gives value to man, but not to the point of making man the standard, not humanism, but rather um, a, a, a balanced view of man. So we need to turn there. So he turns from created order to the mankind himself, and uh, and then the recognition that we are gropers, we should, we're supposed to be seeking the Lord, we're supposed to be looking for him, um, and he's not near, he's not far off. He, it's not his problem, it's your problem. And that takes us back to point one of the study. Uh, point two, actually, prayer is point one. Point two of the study, which is we have to confront people with their uh, sin. Well, he's done that. You're gropers. You're in the dark. You should be seeking God, and you're not. And then he, again, goes back to God. For in him we live and move and have our being. 
Also, some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Isn't that great? Paul can quote Greek poets. What does that tell you? It should be your preparation for engaging people and reasoning with them over the gospel. You should be well read. You should know what they know. Do you know their arguments? You, they're not hard to find. They're not hard to engage. Um, but you should know them. You should be student. I mean, Paul here, off the cuff, is quoting a Greek poet. We are his offspring. And a, a poet that apparently they recognize, one of your own poets said this. I don't know if Paul just read that earlier today, that day in the marketplace. He picked up a, you know, a scroll and opened up. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I don't know what, what, how long he's known that, but he's known it. He knows it on this occasion, and he engages them. You should know the other positions. And, and when believers only know the Bible and don't know what is the milieu around them, you're going to get caught off guard. Oh, I, don't, I never thought of that. Because now you come off as what? Ignorant, uninformed, unthoughtful. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be an expert in it all. I'm not calling you that, but you should have an understanding of what arguments they're going to be using from their different positions. What are the arguments of an agnostic? What are the arguments that atheists use? What are the arguments that humanists use? What are, they, are, what are the, their positions? What is their uh, perspective? What, how, their philosophies, how do they support that? And what, how do they attack Christianity from that perspective? Okay, and so I can find those things out. And it's not gonna disturb my faith because I have the truth. They're going to be ignorant of your position. That's what these philosophers were ignorant of Christianity. Paul was not ignorant of their writings and their beliefs. Okay? And so if somebody says, I don't want you studying or reading that, um, you have to ask them, well, why? Are you afraid that it's going to disturb my faith? Or does it not, or can our truth not stand up to it? Now, I had a realtor friend. Um, well, he became my friend as our realtor. And uh, he, as soon as he showed us the first house, I said, so are you Mormon? Because I showed up with four children. <laughs> and uh, I said, no, I'm not a Mormon. <laughs> I'm a, a Baptist. And he wanted to engage, engage, and engage, engage. And then, um, after a year or two, he says, oh, I read this book. And I was like, what book was that? And it really disturbed his faith. And he was involved in the Catholic Church right over here, the Sanctuario. One of their teachers, layperson, but he was a, one of the teachers in the, in the church, their leader in the church, in the Sanctuario right over here um, in Westgate. And I said, well, what's disturbing your faith? He said, well, he has read this book on textual criticism. And if you don't know what textual criticism is, that's okay. I don't have time to tell you what it is. And I was like, well, why would that disturb your faith? He's like, well, maybe everything we believe is wrong. And I'm like, well, maybe everything you believe is wrong, but I don't have a problem. I can stand up to textual critics. He says, really? I was like, sure. 
And I just want to tell you the end story, okay? Um, he, because I was in the midst of having my, of writing my book and having it published, he got a copy of it before that and was uh, super engaged and uh, calling me and asking me questions. We had a couple of times meeting and um, never heard from them for a while, for a long time. And then I met him somewhere and he says, Pastor, I'm not a Catholic anymore. I said, why aren't you at my church then? Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that one who put you on that road to get to the truth was me. I, we were in a relationship that I, because he was at a crisis point, because he hadn't heard any of this, didn't know how to respond to that. And his truth didn't hold, his truth, the Catholic truth, didn't hold up to it, and he knew it. And so to find someone that says, well, I have a different foundation than the one you have. And it holds up against it. And so it moved him into a place of exploration that led him right out of Catholicism entirely. And so be ready to engage people, but you need to be well-versed. Paul was well-versed. One of your own poets says. And then, of course, before the end of this, we're going to get to the resurrection. But I want you to notice that, um, verse 29, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, which is everything they're worshiping, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. We go right into repentance. We go right into the resurrection. But notice, you are the ignorant ones. Please understand that. When you're trying to reason with people, don't think that they know everything you know about the truth of God. They are in the position of ignorance, and a teacher has to be a patient person to communicate a lot of information to overcome ignorance. These were heavy-duty philosophers that made it their life's pursuit to think. You're not going to encounter those people <laughs> very rarely, maybe occasionally. Um, but their ignorance is similar, and so you need to be ready to engage them on that basis and, and, and be that patient. I mean, Paul here is not yelling, but he is calling them. Um, your ignorance got overlooked, but now you need to repent. And then he, and notice, he still has introduced Jesus, has he? And then he tells them, about the sacrifice. Then, and so he tells them about their ignorance, then he tells them about their need to repent, and then he talks about what? God's appointed day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man. Jesus, and that man is Jesus Christ, who he raised from the dead. All right? And so he goes right through it. He says, created order, man, um, I'm going to review what you believe, and then tell you that that's, you're groping in the dark, you're ignorant, you need to come to repentance, and there is a judgment. Does that sound familiar from the last step? Sin, righteousness, and judgment, these are all part of Paul's presentation to philosophers. So when you want to reason with people, be patient, keep your head, but don't think that you're going to get away with, with um, just random arguments. You're going to have to know what you're engaging. And it's not hard. It's not, because really most of their philosophies, and first of all, the people you're engaging are not going to have thought through their philosophies that well. 
But that doesn't give you an excuse not to be well prepared. Okay? You should know. I'm not afraid of you studying these other groups, I, uh, unless you're very weak in the faith or very impressionable. Um, but if you know the truth, you can read these other things and expose it pretty, I mean, it's not that hard, really. Even agnosticism, that's probably one of the most difficult ones to engage. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for this study, the time, and Lord, help us to be better communicators of your truth, that we might ourselves um, engage with your creation and be primary learners of it from your hand, by your spirit. We thank you for your word to guide us into truth. And, and uh, Lord, we pray that we might be ready and uh, to engage people around us and just be observant and perceive where what they do believe, that we might uh, move them from there by understanding and by patience and by uh, confrontation to draw them to your truth. Lord, help us to have that kind of wisdom. And again, we're asking it beyond our intellectual capacity. We're asking for your help in this, uh, in each conversation, to help us to uh, overcome those arguments of the world that really just can't stand up against your truth. And uh, give us that urgency still to share Christ with them and their need to repent before the judgment comes. And again, Lord, we pray tonight uh, for opportunities to engage people, that we might not shy away from them, but that we might uh, uh, move every conversation, every relationship to this very most valuable uh, track that leads to Christ. In his name we pray.